Hi, everyone, and welcome to How to College, our podcast where we get together over some coffee and have some real conversations about what it's like to be a first-generation college student and what that means before, during, and after college. If you're a new listener, our goal here is to democratize knowledge that we've gained along the way, learn a bit more about what it means to be a first-gen, and hopefully help others going through some of the challenges we experienced before. My name is Joseph, I'm one of the podcast hosts, and I'm the first in my family to go to college. On today's show, we will be discussing the topic of having a job while in school. The reality is that for many first-generation students, having a job is a necessity as many families depend on the extra income. In today's episode, we will be discussing the advantages and disadvantages of holding a job through your educational career with one of our awesome guests, Lacey Johnson. Lacey's currently in law school and has an amazing story to share with us about how she handled having a job before college, during college, and while preparing for grad school. She'll talk about the ups and the downs and how this ties into her overall story. It's a great one, and you're going to want to stick around to hear it all, even if you're not thinking about having a job in school. With that being said, let's get started. Hey, Lacey. Thank you so much for joining our show today. We really appreciate you taking the time. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Just to introduce myself, uh, my name is Lacey Johnson. My dad was actually a farmer. My mom was a social worker. I grew up in a small, sleepy town in Central California known as Bakersfield. But really, the place that I call home is Los Angeles. I was born in 1991, and Los Angeles, particularly South LA, you know, the African-American kind of mecca in Los Angeles, was on fire in the civil unrest of 1992 after the Rodney King beating. So my mother said, as a single mom with two children at the time, you know, now there are three of us, said, you know, this neighborhood is a little too dangerous to be raising my children in. So she packed up her bags and said, the city is not a good place for kids right now, especially not black kids. And so we moved to Bakersfield. But what's interesting enough is when I grew up, I wanted to come back to Los Angeles, which was what I considered to be my home, where all my cousins were, where my grandfather was. To talk a little bit about my college experience, my undergraduate experience was very tumultuous, <laughs> to say the least. I did not have a college-going culture in my family, and my mom was like a nerd. She always had straight A's, like did really well, but of course was like at this very under-resourced high school in Compton. So when she graduated, she got a full ride to USC, which is a very well-to-do private school in Southern California. She enrolled, but she dropped out after the first semester. My mom was a college dropout. No one before that had ever attempted to go to college in our family. We had this history of being really, really smart, but educational institutions didn't work for us. So when I say my family didn't have a college-going culture, I mean, we valued education. We always valued education, but it's just the educational systems, you know, we just didn't believe it. We didn't believe that they worked for people like us. So when it was time to apply to college, I also remember coming from California that the UC system was very much pushed on us as like the ideal academic institution. So I never had heard really of like an HBCU or didn't really see the value in a Cal State school or even say like a private liberal arts college. I feel like the the breadth and depth of what types of universities there were out there, no one ever explained that to me. All I knew was coming from California hey, you need to go to UC school. If you don't go to UC school, it's not a good school. I remember applying maybe to like five schools. And the reason for that was at the time, you know, my mother made enough money where we didn't qualify for like a fee waiver, but we also didn't have the cash flow to be able to pay for applications. So I was one of those missing middle kids. I was a single parent household. We had enough to keep the lights on, but that was about it. 
So I remember if I wanted to get new clothes for back to school, or I was on my high school debate team, if we were traveling to a school for a tournament or something, like I had to be able to pay for those things. And so I worked. It's crazy because I honestly feel like even though that was like a very hard thing to do, my friends were like hanging out during the summer or, you know, when you're a senior, you get to bring your car to school. Like they were doing all that cool stuff. I was working for the city and I had a very small job in the summertime. I worked at the pools and like they charged it like a dollar fee or something like that to come into the pool and I would collect the money. But what's interesting, and I'll get back to this later, is having working for the city on my resume, even though literally I was just collecting dollar bills actually really helped me in the future when I went to apply for jobs, college and things like that, because it looked really official because it said, you know, I worked for the city on my resume. But so back to what I was saying is that if I wanted to do something extracurricular, I had to pay for it. Like the moral in that story is like, even though we may not have parents that understand what it's like to go to college, or, you know, we may not have siblings that understand what it's like to go to college, that if we really want something, there are resources out there for us. We just have to go the extra mile to take advantage of them. Little did they know my dad was a cotton farmer and couldn't read. The one school that let me in is UC Santa Barbara. And UC Santa Barbara, out of the UC schools, is like a pretty decent school. It's pretty well known, right on the ocean in the central coast of California. But the one thing that I didn't know (laughs) is that there were no black students, like none. There was no way for me to know. I had never visited. I had never seen the campus. I had seen some photos and I saw the ocean on the website and I just threw my application in. But I think that that's also another first-gen disadvantage. Like, I didn't have the opportunity to vet the school before I got there. I had to shoot blind. So I showed up on campus. My sister drove me to college. I was saying, like, we just don't have a college-going culture in my family. So when I went to school, I feel like a normal student, they have this big whoop-de-doo. Like, they have a party. Their parents run a U-Haul. They get all new furniture. They put it in. Like, you know, post on what we were using back then, MySpace. Like you post on MySpace that you're driving to college, you know, whatever. My experience pulling up to school was my sister had this little coupe Honda and all my stuff was stuck in the trunk. <laughs> you know, she pulled up to Santa Barbara, pushed me out the car and kept to push it. Right. Like literally that was how I pulled up to college. And I remember being very sad because the two of my classmates also got into UC Santa Barbara from my high school. But the difference is, is that their parents were able to finance them living on campus in the dorms. And I was unable to do that because you also have to keep in mind, right? We were talking about intersectionality. You also have to remember the historical context of what was happening at that time. So I graduated from high school in 2009. That was also right when the economy was collapsing. That was the housing crisis. Like people were losing their homes and that happened to my family. So my mom lost her house. She couldn't finance. She couldn't take out loans for me to go to school. So I remember having a conversation with my mother. And, you know, I told her, I'm like, hey, I want to go to college. And, you know, she was in tears. And she was like, Lacey, you know, I would love for you to go to college, but I hope you know that I can't help you if you go. Like, I don't have the cash uh, to give you. And she told me, she said, well, if you stay in town, there's a Cal State school in Bakersfield, you know, where my mother was living at the time. And she's like, well, if you stay in town, you, you can live in my house for free. And obviously I'll feed you no bills. But she's like, the second you step foot outside my house, I can't help you. And so that was a moment for me where I had to decide whether I was staying or I was going. And I knew that going was going to be hard. I didn't know how I was going to make money. <laughs> I had no clue. I had no, you know, I had no clue what a college class was like. Like, I didn't know what my schedule was going to be like. I didn't know how, much, how big of a load it was. And I came in knowing I was going to have to work. And then to add on top of that, that I couldn't stay on campus. So I remember my sister dropped me off. I found some random room to rent in some random lady's house. And there were three girls that were going to UC Santa Barbara in one room. And my rent was like, I still want to say it was probably $500. Like it was ridiculous what I was paying for 
there to be that many people in one room. I was like staying in a bunk bed. And so it was socially isolating. Everyone lived on campus and campus was like a good 20 minute bike ride from where I was staying. So was it impossible for me to hang out? No. Was I disadvantaged? Absolutely. And not only did all the first year students live in in on-campus housing, but there was a black hall of students. And all of the black students, you know, all obviously using that very liberally because there weren't that many of them, right? But they all lived on one floor in this one particular dorm hall. So they were able to build community because there was like the African hall where all the black students lived. And then I was a 20 minute bike ride away from campus. So it's not just, oh, you know, my mom couldn't help me live on on on-campus housing. It's also, I couldn't find my community because I couldn't live in on-campus housing. So fast forward, the UCs are on a quarter system. We're halfway through the first quarter. I'm struggling academically. I am working full-time at a Kmart that's like around the corner, literally full-time. So I would work all day, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, and all my classes were squished on Tuesdays and Thursdays from sunup to sundown. And on Sundays, I would study. That was my schedule every week. And I kept it up. I don't know how I did it. Like, I I honestly, when I look back at, at undergrad, like it was so traumatizing. And I just think about how many students are out there doing that silently. Like there are so many students that don't have the cash, that are on their last meal, that have parents that want to help them so bad, but are crying because they can't do it. They can't afford to do it. You've maxed out the support that the school can give you and you're just stuck and you have to make it work. Like if you want it that bad, you'll figure it out. But the stress that comes with it is, is insane. Yeah, especially with all the unknown factors, right? Absolutely. I had never lived outside of my house before. So I'm like, I'm, I'm in a new city. It's a very white and wealthy city. And I didn't know that before I got there. Then on top of that, I'm on this campus that's also very white and wealthy. And I didn't know that before I got there. Then on top of that, I'm working. And not only am I working, but I'm working full time. I'm literally pulling 40 hours a week on top of a full time school schedule. So, you know, to make to make a long story short, I end up dropping out after the first quarter, the first the first 10 weeks. I couldn't do it. And, you know, and it's not even that I couldn't maintain the schedule. The schedule was fine. I was used to working hard. I was already working in high school. I had family responsibilities. It's not even that. It was the social isolation that was the nail in the coffin. I could not find friends. I could not build community. And I think that's when I realized that that was so important to me. I think growing up, that's something I always had, whether it was through church, whether it was my actual like biological family, whether it was through friends, you know, whatever. But I think when I moved to a new community and I couldn't get my bearings, like I couldn't figure out where I belonged, that's what made me pull the plug. You know, I had to tell my mother and I like, I was so scared to tell my mom that I had failed. So I cooked up this master plan. Okay. I said, I no, and I really did. I'm not even kidding. I was like, what can I tell her that is greater, that will make her happier. So she'll forget that I dropped out of school. And so I went to my mother and I said, mom. I don't like UC Santa Barbara. I'm going to drop out. I'm going to transfer to community college. I'm going to do two years at community college and I'm going to transfer to UCLA. That's what I told her. When I decided to go to community college, I had another choice to make. Do I stay in Santa Barbara? Do I go back home to Bakersfield? Do I go to LA? Where, Where do I go to community college? And so, you know, I don't know how I had the foresight to do this. I would have to spend some more time thinking about it. But I remember looking up the best community colleges in California? Like what are the highest ranking community colleges in California? And ironically enough, you know what the number one is? Santa Barbara City College. 
So I sat down and I, you know, and I'm, I'm literally talking to myself, right? I said, Lacey, what do you need to, what do you need to survive? And I said, the first thing I, I said was, I need a higher paying job so that I can work less hours. Okay. That was the first thing I said. And, you know, honestly, like I, you know, this almost brings tears to my eyes because I'm just like, how the hell was I this mature? Like, I don't know how, like, I, I really didn't have any support. I figured out if I could figure out how to make more money that I would work less hours and I would have more time for school or social activities. And that would help me maintain my balance. So now you're asking me, how did I get a higher paying job? Okay. I leveraged that little job I had in high school working for the city uh, because I found a job working as like an after school program assistant. And in Santa Barbara, those after school programs are run by the city. They're not run by the school district or by, you know, these nonprofits. In Santa Barbara, they're run by the city. So I completely fudged my work experience on my resume, right? Like fake it till you make it, like totally, like I was stretching it. But my resume said that I worked for the city previous, a different city, but it said I worked for a city. Little did they know I was collecting dollars at that pool. That's literally what I was doing. I was facilitating community programming, okay? That's what I was doing. And so when they reviewed my application, I was at the top of the list because they said, oh, Lacey's already worked for the city and she's in college. Bam. Okay. All of a sudden I was making between 12 and $15 an hour, which meant that I only had to work part-time. So my schedule became, I went to school from nine to 12 and then I worked from two to six every day, Monday through Friday. And I had my weekends to myself. I like how you still remember that schedule, by the way. No, I, okay. I mean, it was like a good four years of my life. Like I'll never forget it. And then I used that after school program job to get a job. You know, this is a ladder, right? Like I'm literally stepping on stone and each step is a stretch. And I think, you know, that, that's a life lesson right there. Right? Like, don't be afraid to stretch it. Okay. Like you have to stretch it. You grow from stretching. So I was an after school program coordinator, which meant I, I hung out with kids after school. I was able to stretch that job into being a teacher's assistant at a high school, more money. So then my schedule became, I worked from nine to 12 and then I went to school from one to six every day. And that became more manageable for me. My grades improved. When I went to community college, I got straight A's. When I left UC Santa Barbara, my GPA was a 2.5. When I graduated from community college, Santa Barbara City College at that, I had a 4.0 GPA. It was never about my ability. It was about, could I create an environment where I could thrive? That there are other people out there like you. You're never alone. And to ask for help, it's okay. So I applied to UCLA and, you know, it was another, it was another stretch, shoot my shot moment. Okay. Because, you know, yeah, I was graduating community college with honors, you know, whatever, but I still had those crappy grades on my transcript from when I went to UCSB. And I knew when I applied that I was going to have to explain why I went to a four-year university. I dropped out and went to community college and I'm now trying to transfer back to a four-year school. I think now we see that that's a little more common. Back when I was in school, oh my God, you know, back when I was doing this like a decade ago, people didn't do that. So I remember it came time to write my application for UCLA. And I was like, what am I going to write about? What am I going to write about? And I really questioned whether I was going to authentically answer whatever the prompt was. I don't remember what it was, but I remember sitting down and having another conversation with myself. I think that's like another theme of this podcast is have conversations with yourself. So I remember sitting there and being like, okay, Lacey, are we going to be 100% Lacey? Are we going to be 50% Lacey today? Like, what are we going to do? Like, what, you know, what are we going to serve UCLA today? And I decided that I was going to tell my real story. So you know what I wrote about in my college application for UCLA? I wrote about how 
I didn't have a family that went to college, how I, I, you know, I come from a very low income community and that going to a school like UC Santa Barbara was culture shock for me and that I let the white people at that school intimidate me. That was the culture at that school. I let that intimidate me. I let it psych me out. I let it punk me and I left and that I took the time to get myself together to build my confidence up and that I wanted to try again because I thought I was ready. And that was a level of vulnerability that I was not ready to tell an institution like that, to tell them, hey, I messed up. Hey, these are real issues that affect us. Campus climate is a real thing. But at the end of the day, what they cared about was not that I dropped out of school. It was the resilience that I came back. And not only did I come back, but I came back better than I was before. But it was hard. It was hard to say that I failed, to, to admit that. It was hard to give myself that feedback to say that I could have done better. It was hard to admit that I was scared of these people that I thought were better than me. You know, like that's really what it came down to, right? Is I was like, I can't, I can't hang with these people. When in reality, they were dealing with half the stuff that I was, right? <laughs> like not even, not even close. And so I think like we as diverse people, as first gen people, we do not give ourselves enough credit. And I'm, and I'm going to flat out say it. Like we are so hard on ourselves. And we do not take the time to say that, hey, you know, the starting line is not equal. And I think we're very quick to hold other people accountable to that. Like, hey, 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 we remind other people, but we do not give ourselves the benefit of the doubt enough. And when I look back on my life, if I talk about a moment that changed my life, I would definitely say it was telling my truth in that essay. And so, you know, my advice to first gen students everywhere is never be afraid to be authentically yourself. Never be afraid to ask yourself tough questions. Never be afraid to fall and get back up again. Like, I mean, life is a series of falling and getting back up again. But the key part, is, the key point is that you get back up and you keep moving forward and you keep putting one foot in front of the other, no matter how long it took. I ended up graduating from UCLA with a 4.0 GPA. At UCLA, they really cared about the, the community of Los Angeles. And a lot of my time spent at UCLA was actually off campus. So I would go to class, but my job, I had an on-campus job, but my on-campus job was to run an after-school program at South Los Angeles which is like a very low income neighborhood, you know, black and brown folks everywhere. And so, yes, I was like, you know, I was in the ivory tower, but I was spending half of my time at the ivory tower in black South LA. And that's what I needed to make it. Like that is literally what I needed to make it through was to be a part of a school that cared about the community that I came from and allowed me to do that too. And, and saw value in that. So I joined this program, actually the one that I worked at, it was called SHAPE. And it was run out of the African Student Union, you know, which was like our black club on campus. And that ended up being my community was this program that was housed within our African Student Union. This program existed across different identification factors, right? So like, oh, like every everyone had a version of this program. So it was cool because I got to meet people from different cultures, but still had the same mission. And so I think that was the amazing part is being able to meet like-minded people, cared about the things that I cared about from the communities that, you know, were similar to mine. And we were all here and making it as UCLA students. But I do want to talk a little bit about like my major and why I chose it and how I found mentors and things like that. So I study political science and, you know, UCLA is a research university, very big on research. So me, just the product of being there, I was like, oh, well, clearly I have to research while I'm here. Again, just being curious. And I was like, let me go check it out. Let me see if I like research, right? So they had this program where they would pay me and see, that was the other thing too, is I never did anything that didn't pay me, uh, which is a very privileged position. And we could talk about that too, but I had to make money. Like I had, you know, for obvious reasons, we've been talking about this the whole podcast, but 
I could not afford to do anything that didn't make money. And so just to, I'm going to stick a pin in that for a second because that's very important as well. So like, for example, that meant that there were extracurricular opportunities that I could not partake in because the time requirement outweighed the benefit to me because it was, you know, every, every hour that I was doing something that didn't make money was an hour I wasn't making money. Right. So like when I first came to campus, one of my really good friends asked me, he said, Lacey, you're a transfer student. You're great. Like we really need a transfer student representative on this board. Will you come do it? And the first thing I did was ask him, I said, oh, so is it a paid position? And he was like, no. And I was like, oh, I can't do it. I was like, I literally cannot, like, I do not have enough room in my calendar to take on stuff that is not paying me. And I think that's fine. You know, like I, you know, I think that that's another first gen issue because it's like, we should be able to partake in a lot of these extracurricular activities, but we can't because we have to be bringing the cash. So I remember being sad about that, but you know, I, I figured out a way to make it work for me. I found something different, but similar that paid me, but was still allowing me to like fulfill my mission. So I found this research program that would give me a stipend if I finished a research project with a faculty mentor. So to me, I was like, bang, like, that's great. Like, I get a faculty mentor, I get to make some cash, I get to, you know, explore this research thing. Experiential learning is very important to me. So like, I'm very hands on. So I was like, yeah, any, any hands on anything I can do to get me out of the classroom, like, let me do that. But the issue was, is that I had to find a faculty mentor. And I had no clue how to do that. <laughs> I had no clue how to do that. And so when you're, you know, 22, right? Like a 40-year-old person that has their PhD from Harvard is scary. Like you're supposed to roll in their office and be like, hey, let me, you know, work with me. Yeah, right, right? So so what I did was I wrote up a proposal for the kind of research I wanted to do. Um, and at the time, I was very interested in like the efficacy of food stamps and, you know, the myth of the welfare queen and stuff like that, right? Like I was very into like, social services. So I had written up a research brief about how I wanted to dig deeper into like who was actually receiving food stamps. And in the political science department, I looked at the faculty list and, you know, the first thing I did was look for somebody that was black. So I was like, who is in this political science department that's black? Like, it'll probably be easier for me to talk to them. And there was one, there was one. And she was a new professor. She was a woman. Her name's uh, Dr. Lori Frazier Yokely. And she's like still my mentor to this day. I remember asking her for a meeting. I went to her office and I sat down and I said, hey, I'm trying to do this research program. Here's what I'm interested in studying. Can you help me? And of course, like, I'm just like sweating. I'm dripping. I'm like stumbling over my words. Like, you know, like, I'm crazy. Um, and so, you know what she responds to me? She says, you know, this is not what I research. Like, this is not what I research. And I said, what? <laughs> right? I'm like, what do you mean? This is, a, what, this is the political science department. What do you mean? This is not what you... And she said, and, you know, and this is what the great thing about seeking out people that understand you, right, is she said, Lacey, the way that this works is you can only do research with me if you research what I'm researching. That's how this goes. And, you know, and that's the whole hidden curriculum. I had no clue. I literally walked in there with my own research, like, can you help me with this? And she was like, no, like you don't, you do, you make, you make life easier for me. You don't make it harder for me. But she was gracious. She said, Lacey. If you're willing to do research on what, the book that I'm writing right now, I will help you with your own project. But as long as it's the same topic as what my research is. So basically she said, throw away your proposal and come do this other one that I already have. And I said, hallelujah, I'm here. I'm, I'm here for it. Right. Like I was like, I'm, whatever you're researching, I didn't even ask what it was. I was like, yes. Right. Like, do you know? And, you know, and that was incredibly 
gracious of her because, you know, faculty mentors are not obligated to take undergraduate students onto their onto their research project. Like this was an active research project that she was working on. So there were a whole host of reasons that she could have shut her door. Full host. But what she saw was a mature first generation African-American female college student that didn't know what she was doing. And rather than make me look stupid, she decided to help. And so she ended up being my faculty mentor for the rest of my time at UCLA. I worked very closely with her. I took many of her classes. We got super close. And she actually ended up publishing her book. And I got an acknowledgement in the book for being her research assistant. I feel like it's a lot of times basically a gamble and you just have to play the game enough times in order to win. Yeah. And you have to be confident enough in yourself to know that if you get a no, it's not about you. It's not personal. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's not, it's not about you. But again, like, other people are getting taught this stuff from a young age. I had no one telling me how to do that. So it, there was a little more trial and error in my experience. So I ended up working with my faculty mentor. She was great. She inspired me to get a PhD. She was like, oh, Lacey, like, you're great at this. You should really think about getting a PhD. But I realized through my research project that I was writing all this stuff. I was analyzing all this data. I was making all these policy recommendations, but I had never tried to implement any of this stuff. I had never done a project. I had never written a law. So I felt like a phony. So again, another like wisdomism that I don't know how I got, but that thought came to me like, hey, you should actually try this. And my curiosity was like, yeah, let's go do it. So I was looking for work experience in policymaking. So I said, oh Lord, like I need, I need to get an internship working for an elected official. So again, Lacey, how do you get there? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. It's like, that's what I need to do. Yeah. But how? Lacey, you have no connections. Like, you you know, no one, your parents can't get you a job. Like, how are you going to do this? So our school had like this website where they posted internship listings and stuff like that. And I remember scrolling through the internship postings. And the first thing that I did was, again, look for the first person that was black. It worked before. I know. Why not? Right? Yeah, yeah. And the first person that I saw was black was this black woman. And her name is Holly Mitchell. At the time, she was an assembly member in California and just so happened to represent the district that covered UCLA. So I shot my shot. I submitted my resume. I wrote a a cover letter. And, you know, I think people liked me because I was experienced. I was a little older because I was a transfer student. And my resume was pretty good. You know, other people just went to college, right? They just went to school. I was like in school. I was working. I was I was volunteering. I was like, you know, whatever. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think that's another thing, too, is I think people don't tell first gen students that going to school, just making it through is the bare minimum. And that's hard. And that's hard to hear because getting through school is already so much like for us. That's already so much. But going back to hidden curriculum, we know as graduates that if you graduate with just a degree, you're not getting a job. It's it's the networking. It's the internships. It's the work experience that gets you the job. Okay. So I feel so bad because I have so many friends that were in school with me that graduated and didn't get jobs because they were just going to, to class and they were going home. Yeah. And I, you don't know that until it's almost too late, right? You don't know that until you're actually trying to get that job. And then you see what's working, see what's not. And then you realize, oh, th- these were things that I, I should have been doing in years prior. And I'm only learning this now. And then it's too late or you got to do triage. So I shot my shot at that internship. And they called me back and I got it. And I went into the office. I was so nervous. I, and you know, what's funny is 
you'll realize why this is funny now because I worked for an elected official for the past seven years. But when I went to that internship, I had no clue how the government worked, like at all. <laughs> like, like, you know, I remember my supervisor for my internship. He asked me, he said, Lacey, he was quizzing me on the levels of government and I didn't know. And see, this is the other thing too about academe not teaching you practical things because you would think I had a political science degree. I should know the difference between what the federal government does, what a state government does and what a local government does, right? But when I showed up to my internship, I didn't know. So he asked me, he said, Lacey, oh, a, a, a tree falls. And I'll never forget this. He, you know, keep This is like 10 years ago. I still remember like it was yesterday. He said, Lacey, if a tree falls from the sidewalk into your front yard, do you call the city, the state or the federal government? And I said, oh, you call the state. And he was like, no, you do not. You do not call it. You definitely call your city for that. I learned so much in that short amount of time. Right. Like this was like an hour meeting and I learned so much about how the government works. And that internship changed my life as well. So you remember how I told you I was going to get a PhD after I got my first little taste of the real world. I said, oh, no, I need more of this. I need more understanding how things actually work. Then the big question came. So what are you going to do when you graduate? And that's like the, the, the impending doom, right? Oh, no, what am I going to do? And people have a lot of anxiety around that for good reason, because there's no clear path for the most part. And a lot of people are relying on, on their existing networks and connections. And, you know, let's be honest, for first gens, we just don't have those kind of things. So for me, I thought what I was going to do is I was looking for something that would kind of tie me over for a year while I figured out what I wanted to do. So, you know, everyone talks about this gap year now. I wanted a gap year at the end of my undergrad, not at the beginning. <laughs> not before I started, but after I graduated, I wanted a gap year to like figure out what I was doing. So I started looking for like, you know, one year fellowships that would pay me, would buy me some time before I actually had to start working. And so I remember being back at my internship working for that assembly member, right? And one of her directors said to me, Lacey, you remind me so much of the assembly member. You know, you guys should really formalize your mentor-mentee relationship. And that's a whole nother topic is asking for sponsorship and getting mentors and mentee. I'm happy to go off on a whole nother tangent about that too, but we'll stick a pin in that for right now. But he, he pulled me to the side and he said, Lacey, you remind me so much of her and you need to spend more time with her. And he also said, you know that the assembly member was a Coro fellow. Have you thought about doing the Coro fellows program? And Coro is a public affairs fellowship program. They have a couple centers across the country and it's very prestigious. There's only 12 people per center. There's probably only 50 people in the program in the country every year. And I didn't even think I could apply. I was like, who's going to pick me for this program? The assembly member graduated from it. Who am I? You know, whatever, right? All that insecurity started creeping back in. So I, you know, I was like, I'm going to apply, but I wasn't really counting on it, right? And the one I got into was the Coral Fellows program. The one that was the most prestigious was the one that accepted me. And that's how it happens sometimes, right? It happened with Santa Barbara, right? Like, listen, like, what's for you is for you. Okay, like literally what is for you is for you. And it doesn't matter how you got there or how you're going to get through it. You know, the experiences that you're supposed to have are going to happen. And the crazy part is, is I wouldn't have even have known about that fellowship had it not been for this internship that I had. I would have had no clue. And when you Googled it, it wasn't something that looked impressive. So I was like, what is it? You know, I don't know. Do I want do I want to associate myself with this? Right. You know, it's a small nonprofit organization. It's not like they have millions of dollars to invest in advertising and, you know, whatever but I was like, oh, if the assembly member did it, it must be good. So I applied to the Coral's Fellows Program. I got in um, in Los Angeles, where I already was, which is beautiful. And Coro in Los Angeles is the network to have, okay? That's, that is the one. And I didn't know that, right? Like, I didn't know that at all. I just, I was like, oh, yeah, my mentor told me to apply, so I did. 
Little did I know that that was the jackpot. It was a difficult program. It wasn't easy to get through. They did not pay us a lot. I think they pay the fellows more now. When I was going through the program, I was not making any money. Like, it was a struggle. And, you know, I remember my mom, again, going back to my mother, saying, why'd you go to college and you're taking such a low-paying <laughs> opportunity? So my parents were judgy on the front end, right? Like, why are you doing this? It's expensive. Stay home. And I was like, no, I'm leaving. And then I, you know, I come back with this shiny piece of paper, my degree, and they're like, okay, but what job do you have? And I'm like, oh, I got this really prestigious fellowship that pays me a grand every month. And they're laughing at me, right? Like, they're like, what are you talking about? (laughs) But what they don't understand is that, yes, I had to rough it for nine months, but the opportunities and connections that it gave me are priceless. So, you know, we rotated to different companies every month, uh, organizations. The last organization that I was placed with kept me. They hired me. And that has been my job for the last seven years. So my last placement um, was actually working for the county of L.A. for a district supervisor who's an elected official. And, you know, I was very privileged because they told me from the front end that they were evaluating me for a full time position. So at the time, they were not paying me, but I knew that I needed to work my butt off because it was going to lead to a full-time offer if I did well. And so how did I make sure that it led to a full-time offer? And so not every internship turns into a job. And I think that that's also the game that we need to give people. Every internship does not turn into a job, but you need to realize what you can and can't leverage it for. Anyway, so I started working at my first job. And luckily, I had a three-month head start because I was interning there already. And so just to describe my job a little bit, so I work in land use, or I should say works, because what we're going to get to further in the podcast is that I'm now back in school. So, you know, sorry for the spoiler. Um, So for the past seven years, it's so recent, though, it's hard for me to talk about it in the past 10. (laughs) So so my job for those seven years was I worked for an elected official in land use development, which is very broad. My title technically was deputy for community development, which was also very broad. It's hard for people to understand what I was doing, right? And so I think that that's like another thing to think about, too, is how do you really understand what a job is and what it entails? Because what the job description says doesn't necessarily mean that that's what the job is. And I think like I had to learn that the hard way, too, because working for an elected official is like a very sexy job. Every You know, that's very impressive to tell people. But you have to look at the, the types of things that make a, a job a good job for you or not. Right. So for me, what's important is that, you know, the mission is aligned. And it was because the district I was working for was South L.A., so a very underprivileged community that needed a lot of help. Um, And I was happy to be a part of that mission to to better that community. The hours were long, like very, very long. Like I I worked more than 40 hours pretty much every week. I also think another thing that's important to think about when you're picking a job is who your immediate supervisor is going to be. So just because I joined that, you know, particular elected officials office, that doesn't mean that that's who I'm reporting to. So who, who are you reporting to and what's your rapport like? And then also is the salary what you need it to be? Because salaries are always negotiable. And I think, right, that's also part of the hidden curriculum is salaries are suggestions. They're not actually, you know, they're not fine lines. Yeah, and sometimes they expect you to negotiate. But no one tells you that, right? No one tells you that. So anyway, so I mean, I think that those are a couple things to keep in mind when you're picking your first job. Obviously, you can't be too picky when you're right out of college. But I think those are definitely like key things to think about. What I love most about my job is that is that the impact was so visible and that the results were so measurable and definite. I think another big thing that is difficult for first-gen students is professionalism. Sometimes, you know, try to insert those conversations about how cultural things like hair impact others more than others. 
I think like having to, to dress the part was also a big piece for me. You know, I'm also like a plus size woman too. So I think that that's like another dynamic is like, you know, do can big people look professional? Like, can you look clean? And that was a struggle for me because like, you know, a suit in my size is not cheap. I mean, it's not cheap for anyone, but particularly someone that's not like an average size. And so like I struggled. You can't just get it at the store. And so like I just my wardrobe was more limited and I was always nervous that someone was noticing. I also think just like cultural norms of like what's acceptable and isn't. So like I think time, especially for black people, is like a big thing. Like time is very relative to me. Having to adjust to that culture was hard for me. Also how I wrote. So like a lot of the people that I worked with, you know, they like went to private school, you know, their parents were educated, you know, their punctuation and grammar was like on point. Me, like I mentioned earlier, like my dad is not a reader. So like literally, <laughs> like sometimes I have a comma in the wrong place and I still do to this day. And so not feeling inferior about those things and like really having to take them as learning opportunities and like seeking the support and resources that I needed to be able to, to make it through is what ended up being helpful. And I mean, I think that goes back to what we were talking about earlier about seeking mentors. So in the office, you know, I immediately sought out people that I thought could be sympathetic to what I was experiencing and transitioning into the workplace. And they were helpful. I would ask them for feedback on how to navigate, you know, my outfits or my hair, or if I thought, you know, someone said something that was insensitive culturally and those types of things. And it was, and it was helpful to like build that team of people that I knew I could go to. Yeah, no, I mean, I had to do the same thing, right? Like just finding people who can do anything as little as, hey, I need to send this email off. And I know this sounds weird, but can you read it beforehand and make sure that it sounds good? What am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? I don't know, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, it's a lot of trial and error, a lot of a lot of trial and error. And it stings, right? Like when you get it wrong, it stings. But you know, it's over time, your muscle builds and we make it through, you know. And so that's when I started thinking about going back to school. And, you know, it took me a long time because I was very traumatized by my undergrad experience, right? Like when I after I graduated from UCLA, I was like, I'm never going back to school again, right? Like you heard the whole story about how I got through. And that was already one miracle. I'm not, I'm not going to like shoot my shot again at that, right? No, I feel like a lot of people feel that way. I definitely have those thoughts all the time where I'm just like, ah, never mind. I, uh, I feel like I got out like barely. You know that that scene in like Indiana Jones, whenever they like make it through and like the door closes like right behind them. I feel like it's kind of like that. Absolutely. Like it was a gauntlet for sure. And I was like, I'm not trying to run it back. Like I'm really not, right? I'm not trying to do that to myself again. But you know, what? what I also learned though is I was observing the world over those years, but I also was observing myself. And so I was able to, you know, through feedback, through practice, through all those tools, I was able to see like where the gaps in my own skill set were. Like, for example, I was managing projects, um, but when our contractors would hand us a budget, I couldn't read it. I had no clue whether the budget was legit or not, whether they were trying to scam me or not. Like I couldn't read the financials. So, you know, there are two ways to gain that knowledge. One is, like you said, you go to school and you you learn that stuff. Or two, you do your job for a very long time. And for me, I had already put in, you know, five, six years. And I was like, I, I want a shortcut to figure this out rather than sitting here for another five, six, seven years, like learning it. So that's really what made me decide to go back to school, right? Was one, I was like, ooh, I can't read these budgets. And then two, I was doing a lot of complicated land use work, which involves a lot of law. And so that's when I said, oh, you know, I think it's time for me to go back to school. Even though I'm in the public sector, I think the best skill sets for me to learn are, you know, the business skill set, like how you manage people and projects. But I also want to learn the law. So I understand the legal implications of what, of, of how I'm managing people and projects. 
So, I mean, it, I think it also goes back to, like I was saying in Coral, like I'm just a generalist. Like, it's like I know a, a little bit about everything. That's kind of also how I approach my dual degree is I'm like, okay, now after I have these two degrees, there's nothing I can't do because there's not going to be anything I can't understand or at least figure out how to understand. And speaking of like taking advantage of your resources. So the first week that I got to school, you know, I scheduled a meeting with our dean of students. I scheduled a meeting with our diversity director. I scheduled a meeting with and I didn't even have anything to say. I just was like, hey, this is who I am. You guys need to know that I'm here. Here's what I'm struggling with already. Keep me in mind if anything comes up that you need. Right. And what I told them was, was, hey, I just moved last weekend. So I don't have my books. I don't have a bed yet. I told them, I said, look, I'm traumatized because Jacob Blake happened. Like my first week of law school, undergrad was terrible for me. I'm scared to be back in school. My family was in Arkansas. And, you know, obviously they weren't in the path of the hurricane, but they got bad weather and like were without power for a couple of days. So I said, hey, these are all the things I'm dealing with. And it's the first week of law school, which is like the worst week of your worst semester of law school. And I said, and I still... I'm showing up to class with my classmates that have been here for a month and have not a worry in the world, right? As first-gen students, that's just what we deal with. That's what we do, you know? Like, we keep we keep our head up high. We push. We do the best we can. We ask for help when it's available. And I'm so proud of all of us. And, you know, I, re- I really think, like, it, oversharing is okay. And I think, like, we as, as underrepresented students, like, we have to be very vocal about what we're dealing with. And I think like we try to, you know, we try to hide it. We try to deal with it ourselves. We're very private. And the reality is, is that if people don't know what you're going through, they can't help you. And, you know, in Coral, we say this thing, um, you know, you don't know what you don't know. We call it DKDK, right? And if you don't tell somebody what you're struggling with, they, they can't know to help you. I think that's the other thing too, is like, we cannot be worried that we're looking, you know, that we are looking at a certain type of way, right? Like, we're looking like we're whining or we're asking for too much, you know, because other people are out here with their hands out. Okay. Literally, literally or figuratively. And we need to put ours out too. And it's, it's a hand for help. It's not a handout. And I can't think of so many other ways that I, I would have benefited from that. Had I not, you know, had I gotten over my pride a lot earlier, you know, another thing I did too is I'm so, you know, I'm still working during one L, which is like your first year at law school. That's like a pretty big no, no. And and I was honest, you know, that's another thing I talked about in those meetings is I said, look, like I need to work. If I can't handle it, like I will stop. But for now, like until proven otherwise, like I'm going to work. And, you know, and part of it is like, I, I you know, I like the cash flow. I want to save. But also like the impact of that debt is greater for students like me, right? Like me and Joe taking out $100,000 in debt is completely different. So, but anyway, so one thing that I also did was normally the first week of class, the professors, you know, at least at the school that I'm at now, you know, they want to know about you, right? So they send you this thing and they're like, oh, fill out this form telling us a little bit about yourself. My school is pretty small. There's only 250 people in my class. So generally speaking, like the professors get to know you pretty well. And so in each of those forms where it said, oh, or any additional comments, you know what I wrote? I said, P.S. You should know that I'm working part time. I put it on every last one. And, you know, most of the professors responded back to me and they said, wow, Lacey, that's a huge undertaking. Good to know. Let me know if it gets too difficult. There are things that I can do. And I don't know what those things are, <laughs> right? Like I have no clue what they are. But the fact that I told them the first week of school, Ayo, like, this is something you really need to know about me, you know, and I also told them, I said, look, like, I'm also older for a law school student, right? Like, I'm 30. And your average law school student is probably like 24. So I'm also older. I just am, I'm in a little different headspace, right? Yeah, most people in law school, they go right from undergrad. So I told them, I said, look, 
one, I'm working part time. Two, I'm 30. So I like, I'm, I'm not the 24 year old that's getting their assignment done a week early. That's just not me. And I told them, I said, look, like I am always going to get it done on time, but I'm never going to be the first one. And I think telling them that from jump was really important because now everything else that I do, they're seeing it through that lens. And I've had a couple of my professors reach out to me and be like, hey, like, you know, you mentioned this. We're really curious about it. Um, I know I gave you a really big assignment this week. Let me know if you need some extra time. You know, like, oh, if you want to do bullet points instead of paragraphs, I know you're strapped. Like little, little things that make a difference have already been flowing from that. And I wasn't in trouble. I think, you know, I think that that's the point is you need to go to people and tell them what's up before you're in trouble, before you're underwater. Because if you tell, if you tell people after you're underwater, there's not much people can do. If you go from the front end, adjustments can be made along the way so that you're never feeling overwhelmed. But if it's, if it's too late, it's too late. And I think too many of us wait until it's too late. No, I mean, I completely agree. I really think at the end of the day, what it comes down to is figuring out who you are and being that unapologetic. I always tell people, think about like what your mission statement is. Like I've been talking a lot about, you know, mission and what my mission is. I always tell people that my personal like motto and mission statement is build great places, build great people. And at every phase of my life has been a different way that I've carried that out. I like that. I I really do like that. I I like that you have like your personal mission statement. And oddly enough, like it's one of those things that I think I took a class on and like, yeah, we make the mission statement and then we never visit that again. But it makes a lot of sense whenever you have those little decisions that you need to make over time and you can always go back to it. It works with the business and I think it works with you. So I really like that. Lacey, thank you so much for joining us today. You've been a huge help and we know that your story is going to help somebody else out there feel like that they are not alone and let them know how they can use your story and your lessons learned to move forward in their life. Awesome. Yeah, no, happy, happy to to be a resource. And again, you know, I'll say we see you. Um, You're one of us and don't ever feel alone. Lacey has an amazing story, and I love how she ties it all together and owns it. She's motivated to go the distance and continuously level up to get where she wants to be. She's super grounded, and she's reaching for new heights. And I think she encompasses a lot of what it means to be first gen. Well, that's it for today. Thanks again to our speaker for their time and sharing their stories, and thank you for listening in. Follow us on social media and share with us your experience or inexperience with today's topic. You can find us at howtocollegefirstgen.org or at howtocollegefirstgen for Instagram and Facebook and HTC First Gen on Twitter. Let us know your thoughts and what you'd like to hear from us in the future. If you would like to get in contact with one of our guests, be a guest, or have some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening in. Thanks again for listening in.